you're listening to Magnifico Radio. I'm your host, Kate Black. Each week, I sit down with leaders, makers, and designers at the forefront of sustainability to discuss their journeys and motivation. Whether it's ethical fashion, clean beauty, or sustainable products, they're all doing something Magnifico. Today's show is brought to you by Queen of Raw. Wouldn't it be great if there were an online marketplace that offered innovative and sustainable fabrics at low minimums and affordable prices? Check out queenofraw.com. No one does it like the queen. There's no doubt that smartphones have transformed the way we work, play, and manage our lives. A staggering 1.4 billion smartphones were sold in 2015, and they aren't the most ethical product in your possession. A Vice headline from last year read, Your smartphone is probably powered by child labor at mines in Africa highlighting an Amnesty International report that revealed children as young as seven were working in mines in the DRC, the Democratic Republic of the Congo. Add to that labor abuse allegations plaguing Apple, one of the most valuable companies in the world, and it's easy to see that this is an industry ready for disruption. Enter Fairphone, the world's first fair trade socially conscious smartphone. The phone is unique for many reasons. It uses conflict-free metals, it addresses worker wages with a worker welfare fund, and it tries to stave off obsolescence by being modular and allowing users to update specific pieces and parts as needed. Sean Ensett, co-founder of Fairphone, joins me today to talk about being a disruptor and being driven to make a difference through product. Welcome, Sean. Hi, Kate. Thanks for having me today. I read the company started as an advocacy group, initially aiming to raise awareness among Dutch consumers and telcos about the issue of conflict minerals in mobile devices, and then about the sustainability of mobile supply chains as a whole. How and when did you get involved? Really, Fairphone actually started as a communications platform in, in Europe, in particular in the Netherlands. You know, today most of us have heard about conflict minerals, you know, very similar to blood, diamonds, but related to tin tantalum, tungsten, gold. And um, my you know, co-founding team member, Ross Van Abel, he is a designer. Uh, he ran the Fab Lab in, in Amsterdam for a number of, I think, 10 years. Uh, and was just appalled that there was really low awareness about, one, the Civil War and, and the DRC, but also uh, the, the relationship with minerals that go into uh, consumer electronics, including smartphones. And Started a communications platform, got some traction to raise awareness and success in doing so, but then realized really to, you know, understand the system, we should become a part of the system, thus let's create a product. And that was really the time I got involved uh, when they were at Best Not Green Ventures, which is a tech for good uh, incubator in London, and uh, really just building out the, the business plan. And really, the idea is to use the artifact, the, the smartphone as an artifact to tell a story, and the story of the value chain, right, from the commodities used all the way through to repurposing and then eventually uh, reuse or, or end of life. And uh, we're a social enterprise. We believe that you shouldn't have to choose between a great phone and a fair uh, value chain. And we were the first to design a, a modular smartphone. And, you know, obviously it was a very ambitious project. We crowdfunded uh, everything through our own website, which was the largest crowdfunding campaign globally, around $7 million. Uh, And these were early backers that, you know, believed and trusted us that, you know, four people at that time uh, who had never made a smartphone before would would deliver one (laughs) at the end of this 
at the end of this um, process. And what year was that? Um, I believe it was back in 2013. Okay, so you meet Boss, you guys decide that you're going to create this disruptive um, smartphone, and with two other partners decide that you're going to create it and you're also going to crowdfund it. That's right, in a highly saturated, commoditized industry with a few dominant players. So people thought we were crazy, basically. Yeah, except that it's one of the industries that really does need a disruptor. If anything, you know, if you think about, you know, there's labor issues in the supply chain. Like you said about the conflict minerals, a lot of consumers don't realize that the the phone is is possibly, probably um, a party to that. And not only that, but there's no end-of-life strategy for any of those devices. That's right. That's right. So I can't think of another industry that is more ready for a disruptor. So I'm not surprised in the slightest that you raised $7 million. Over what time frame? Um, that was actually just through a, um, a campaign on our website over the course of uh, five months. <laughs> okay. So obviously the, the, the idea has been validated. And what happened next? Yeah, so um, well, then we realized we had to take on this great responsibility and actually deliver a phone. You know, then we moved on. And we don't, we're not interested in creating iterations and iterations of, of smartphones, right? There's also there's a tension always in the company about just making more stuff to sell to people. And while this sounds corny, we really mean this. You know, the fairest phone you have is the one in your hand. When you've used it and cannot use it any longer, consider so we wanted to take that design to the next level. You know, initially, we, because of the funding and so forth, we could only do setup. And now uh, we could move into the ODM where we developed our own original design, and that was the modular design. The idea around the modular design is based on circular economy principles and design a phone for between five and seven years useful life, rather than the industry standard, which is roughly two to three years, and then you know there's all this sort of built-in obsolescence. And the idea is, and I encourage you to check out some of our videos, uh, they, they're more descriptive than I will be. You can take each modular out of the phone with a zero-fill screwdriver, so basically something uh, that you maybe fix your eyeglasses with your sunglasses. And you can pop those in and pop them out. Now, the advantage there is there's something. We sell all the spare parts for the phone, so you can just order a spare part uh, and replace it yourself. You can uh, also then begin upgrading each modular to, again, extend the life of the phone. And we're actually starting with the, the camera now. We're, we're upgrading a module for a, for a camera. So that's sort of the principle behind, behind the modular design. And we've, we've received really good reviews by iFixit. We got a 10 out of 10, which is the highest they've ever given in consumer electronics for useful life, but also for repairability, re, you know, replacing parts and, and so forth. The screen, actually, you can, with no technical ability and no tools, you can take off within, you know, 20 to 30 seconds. So that's just a you know, frustrating problem people have when they break their screen. So that's, that's what we're doing and what we're uh, working uh, for. The other other element, Kate, I mentioned is we disclose a lot of information. And really, you know, what this is about 
is inspiring the industry to change because I never compare ourselves to any companies. There's good stuff happening in pockets, but it begs the obvious question: If this, you know, small company can do this, why can't others? So uh, we just we our whole LCA on the phone, uh, life cycle assessments disclosed, factory reports on working conditions are are disclosed, and what we're trying to do is, you know, have a debate about what fairness means to people, whether that's human rights in the Congo, whether it's working conditions, whether that's e-waste recycling in Ghana. And, and we have a lively debate of, sorry, of consumers, but also our community uh, that's active in that discussion. I want to come back to that because I think that that's sure. actually um, really important. But before, before we go to break, I just want to know, so when did the first products hit the market or when were you able to deliver to um, the crowd funders? 2014. And so here we are, 2017. How many have you produced? Uh, total sales. Remember, there's a Fairphone 1 and then Fairphone uh, 2. Um, I, the current number is around 125,000. So we're tiny, tiny, tiny player in a very large industry. A tiny ethical player in a very large industry. Okay, let's just take a quick break and we're going to come back. Special thanks to our sponsor, Bank Invoke. Bank & Vogue provides a full package of services tailored to the unique needs and wants of the apparel industry. Immersed in clothing collection and reselling for over 20 years, Bank & Vogue services, expertise, and new manufacturing facility can help streamline your brand's challenge with waste. Renowned for their innovative and relevant solutions to the crisis of stuff, visit bankvogue.com. You're listening to Magnifico Radio. This is Kate Black, and I'm talking to Sean Ansett of Fairphone. So, Sean, just before the break, we were talking about the small drop of water that your Fairphone is making in the industry, but partly because you've asked people to consider the phone that they are holding in a fair way. So to try and actually extend the life of it and keep it as long as possible before transitioning. So we can imagine that Fairphone is going to have a greater uptake as people's phones with a life expectancy of two or three years start to conk out. Where can people use it? Like, does it have full global access? How are the SIM cards working? What's the functionality? So um, you do have full global access. And we have we have tested that around the world, and you know it, it's interesting. We're only selling into Europe at this time, and the reason we're not selling into the U.S. and we just actively discourage people from buying a phone is just we can't service it properly. Right, that requires a whole ecosystem of, of service and, and customer service. And in and Europe, and what I feel is encouraging the U.S. is you know you're not locked into plans and can pop in your your SIM cards and and so forth. We have done. One kind of dating uh, with uh, T-Mobile in Austria. Um, our largest uh, market right now is Germany. Uh, so hopefully if that goes well, they may uh, take us into Germany uh, with them. So that would be one of our first bricks and mortar. Uh, we're also doing some work with Co-op uh, Group in the UK, uh, which has a uh, mobile phone shop. And doesn't the 2.0 version, can't you carry double SIM cards in it? Oh, sorry. Yeah, so that's another feature. Yeah, it's, it's dual SIM. Uh, again, that's, you know, for several reasons. Uh, one, uh, less, you know, people are not comfortable uh, sometimes using their employer phone for personal 
use because of some of the tracking that's taken place and the stories we've heard about. Uh, but it also likes developing countries, right? If you go to Africa and other uh, Southeast Asia, uh, there's many dual SIM phones, but the carriers don't necessarily like that, right? They want to sell you two phones. <laughs> uh, so this also helps to address uh, the amount of waste on the planet and uh, taking more phones uh, out of the out of the stream. And why does the smartphone industry need a competitor like like Fairphone? We've we've all heard of the inherent problems of uh, smartphone production, whether it's e-waste. Right, we have um, uh, over nine, I believe the number is nine million uh, phones on the planet, uh, more than we are as people. And you know, people often don't think about the implications of uh, phones that are are built for you know short obsolescence periods and that end up as as e-waste, as well as all the other inherent problems of manufacturing, whether it's uh, labor and environmental. So. Um, really, our, we feel our purpose is to inspire the industry to change, and we try to do that through uh, examples of, of what we're trying to do. And so let's talk about the consumer support. The, the launch, um, it was launched entirely through crowdfunding, and you raised 3.5 million euros for the first round of production. And what do you think that says about the industry or about, you know, like the consumer desire for a better product? Yeah, I, I do think it demonstrates that there certainly is a market for uh, more sustainable goods and also uh, taking uh, risks uh, within sustainability, whether it's social and environmental, um, and uh, people are willing to support you along that, that, that process. And most, but very important to that is you still have to deliver, of course, as a company on you know, quality delivery pricing that it actually delivers on the technology that you're promising. So all those attributes matter, uh, but there is, I think, to some degree, a pent-up uh, consumer that's willing to um, uh, support initiatives like this, not only in technology but in other products. And can you talk about how you partnered with Closing the Loop, the Dutch foundation that is trying to solve the problems with electronic waste in the developing countries? Uh, Closing the Loop um, actually came to our offices. Uh, they shared a similar vision. Uh, first, we dated and became friends. And um, they said, hey, we, we'd really like to partner with you. And we were also aware of the, the issues in Ghana, which is a large hub. There are other hubs for e-waste collection. But uh, after the precious materials were taken out, whether it's gold or cantaloupe or other components of, of the phones or materials, uh, a lot of those phones were burned on site, uh, which uh, not only impacted the pickers on the site, uh, but also the local community. So we thought it was a good place. So um, it seemed like a, a great match. Um, they had the expertise of the recycling. We did not uh, to, the, you know, to that degree, and they understood the, uh, the supply chain. Okay. And so that's, that's actually saving 65,000 phones from this kind of e-waste heap. That's right. And, of course, the uh, improper uh, recycling of those phones or the burning, which, you know, of phones, which a lot of, you know, when the, when the precious controls are, are taken out, they're often burned, uh, which then uh, releases toxins into the community. And is Fairphone the only smartphone company that's really working on mitigating conflict around these minerals, or did you lead the charge? No, we're, we're one of many. So, you know, and remember that 
we often sort of talk about smartphones, but this is really across consumer electronics, and it could be televisions and, and other types of electronics that that rely on some of these um, minerals. So, um, you know, it's such a, a massive undertaking. Uh, you're, you're dealing with um, uh, militia groups. Um, uh, you're dealing with uh, you know, governments in the region uh, that uh, uh, with all of the those UN agencies, as well as national governments, both in Africa and abroad, as well as a number of uh, responsible electronics companies, uh, we have participated in the, in the meeting, as well as setting up those track and trace mechanisms. But it was not the case that all of those companies decided to continue sourcing uh, from from the DRC. I think that's one of the key differences. And do you think it can be stopped? Do you think we're we're on the right path to ending conflict materials in general and conflict minerals specifically? Yeah, I think again, while you know the legislation had some of these negative impacts on on some of the mining communities, I think the efforts on behalf of both the corporates, non for profits, and 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 governments has certainly improved the uh, situation. We have to continue to work uh, in coordination on those efforts. But remember, this is really an important case that while the egregious violations were related to uh, the conflict minerals. Uh, there are still issues in the mines, you know, environmental degradation. Um, uh, some mines still have uh, child labor uh, involved. So there's many, many other issues to tackle. Um, obviously, this was just so egregious. That's where the focus has been. Uh, but that is not where it stops. There's a lot of work there that still needs to take place. Hence the reason for transparency in supply chains for all electronics. That's right. And you mentioned other other minerals. Um, we made a deliberate decision to uh, to use fair trade gold. Uh, and from our understanding, we're the first in all of consumer electronics to use fair trade gold uh, in our in our smartphone. Uh, but there are only two mines that are certified, uh, one in Peru and one in Colombia. And we chose to uh, source from the Peruvian mine. Okay, let's talk about the Worker Welfare Fund. Why is it a challenge to just pay more? You know, we looked at various models, and we, we used the, you know, the fair trade premium model. We, you know, obviously could have taken that $2.5 per pound uh, as margin, but instead we decided to develop the, the Worker Welfare Fund. And, and the, real, the real important part of that was uh, there's lots of academic evidence. Uh, I've been working on these issues for 20 years, and we really haven't, I, I don't think we've moved the needle that much. So we wanted to look and test sort of new approaches. And for us, uh, worker management relations were critical and really starting a new conversation, a new way of engaging uh, both management and workers, thus the worker welfare fund. So you know, some people get stuck on, hey, we think it's great that, you know, uh, roughly $175,000 were um, distributed uh, to workers. But I think what's probably more important is we work with local some academics as well as local NGOs to develop a robust election process, as well as training, both for management and workers, on and for workers, uh, self-esteem building, how do you conduct a meeting, 
uh, how do you write a letter? Can we use worker welfare funds as an incentive uh, to not not only decide for workers themselves to decide through the electric representatives how they wanted to use the, the funds that were available, but also uh, to discuss with management other issues, where we don't like the food in the cafeteria, the heating is cold in the dorms. Um, and that, that, I think, can have more impact than sort of the quote-unquote policing that takes place in, in many of these factories, creating a new dynamic and a platform for, for workers to engage with management. So what have the workers done with the money in the fund? Proposals were brought up from workers themselves and then and then voted on by the rep group and then brought to the, to the board. And in each and every case, workers uh, voted for a bonus, a cash payout. So that's what we did in the end. I've heard similar stories, actually, because um, <laughs> when Tal Detar from O Liberté, who also has a, a similar fund... Um, with the Liberté shoes in Ethiopia, and he was he was surprised too that the very first thing they wanted was just more money. Um, so I've heard you talk a lot about partnerships, a lot about working with governments and local NGOs and, and partners on the ground. What advice do you have for startups who are trying to launch into existing industries or who are attempting to create innovative business models? Yeah, I think first and foremost um, is to really think about what's material to your organization and with your business model, the, the, the sector that you're involved in to determine where you can have the most impact and, and, and leverage there. So that's, that's really the first point. And as we just, just discussed uh, earlier about sort of the Western mindset, um, you know, as opposed to what people really, what their needs are on the ground is, um, you know, Strong betting and listening from what what the real necessities are uh, in the in the value chain, including from local communities, uh, local non for profits, other other actors. That's really important. And then mapping uh, those stakeholders. I think a mistake that we often make is we think we're going to be Superman or Wonder Woman and come in and, and solve problems, but these are oftentimes systemic. Issues, cultural issues, socioeconomic issues, um, and really seeking out uh, good expertise uh, in the area, which can come from uh, various stakeholder groups, uh, insights, perspectives that we may not have uh, in those situations, and those that are certainly trusted and respected by local actors. So. You know, we often talk about this, but it's really important to long-term sustainability that these groups are actively involved in the process. We're co-learning together uh, as we move forward. Uh, and also being clear about the expectations of that partnership and the deliverables uh, by the various actors. But remember, this is uh, development partnerships, you know, quite different from commercial partnerships. Uh, and and understanding our local context is uh, a very very important. And we 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 continue to learn uh, along that curve and, and the various partnerships that we're involved in. And what advice do you have for consumers about you know the product choices and and how those kind of um, ripple through supply chains and and in, back into the developing world? Yeah, uh, as much as possible. I know it's not always easy, and you know. Our, our busy lives, but really think the think about the implications. 
on your own as well uh, about the values of that company. And remember that you're voting with your with your yuan, your euros, uh, your dollars. And if you feel strongly about something, but make sure that the company hears you. And while we you know often do this on social media. Uh, writing a letter still matters, and if you don't get a response the first time, write another letter, and eventually you will get a response, and you'll you'll get a better sense of where the company stands. Good old-fashioned letters. They've moved mountains in the past. And I'll tell you, when I, sorry, when I was in, you know, uh, corporate life, uh, running sustainability programs, oftentimes I wish we had more letters that I could show to upper management. Yes. Actually, I've heard that a lot from people in your position. They, the consumer, the company is not certain that the consumer wants it. So I think it's our responsibility as citizen and consumer citizens to really kind of step forward and, and demand better products. What's next for Fairphone? You know, we continue to sell into, into Europe. Uh, we're considering developing a, a, a new model. Uh, it's not our goal to continue to, you know, just create more stuff but uh, a model at a slightly lower price point, uh, also modular, uh, so more people can access access the phone. But it's always been our vision as well. You talked about close the loop. Um, Right now, unfortunately, once those phones are are recycled properly, those recycled materials are then not coming back into uh, our phone material stream. So uh, we'd like to get to a point where, you know, urban mining or, you know, through through that program uh, that those materials are coming back into our phones. So that would really be an important next step for us. You know, we talked earlier about modularity and uh, you want to upgrade, have upgrade these modules so you don't have to continue to buy a new product. Uh, and we're already working on the camera and that should be released soon. So a, an improved camera that you can basically with a zero filled screwdriver, you'll be able to pop it in and pop it out within you know a minute, and then you have an upgraded phone that you've done yourself. That that gets exciting, and then working on other modules on on labor uh, and so forth. Um, we've already started on second tier, but we certainly want to get down uh, to third tier suppliers and and develop similar programs as we did with the Worker Welfare Fund. So always lots to do. We're not perfect. Um, uh, we continue to be challenged, and our community keeps checking on us uh, to make sure we're keeping it real. Okay, so I have some standard questions that I ask um, on every podcast, and so I'm curious, if your life had a motto, what would it be? Transformation over incrementalism. Um, do you want to expand on that a little bit? Uh, as practitioners and others that are observers, It can be difficult decisions you need to make both professionally and personally. And, you know, after 15 years sort of in the mainstream, what I would call the mainstream area, um, I I equally had to make a professional and personal decision and um, felt that I wanted to spend the next 15 years of my, you know, career uh, working on transformational models of change and sustainability, thus that's Fairphone, that's Uniform, that's uh, the other projects I'm, I'm involved in. But that's, you know, deeply personal and professional to each, each individual. So that's my, my motto today. I like it, and that actually makes much more sense now that you've explained on it a little bit. And, and I, I say that, and I say why it's deeply personal. We need people working on the incremental stuff. 
this all leads to change over time, right? So you're sowing the seeds today so we get somewhere quicker. And I don't, you know, we'll find out uh, where the best place to spend your energy is or, or will be, but we'll only know that in the future. I agree. I absolutely agree. We need both ends of the, of the stick to be on fire in order to make the change happen. Um, who or what inspires you? My mom passed away last year. She was very much involved in social justice work uh, back in the you know, 60s and 70s. And uh, growing up uh, in a house, household with her um, and you know, discussing these issues of equality and, and the like uh, really kind of set me, I think, along this career path. And like I said initially, um, you know, joining the Peace Corps for me was about learning about international development. Um, it, it, it certainly got me very interested in the issues that we're dealing with today. So uh, I would say that my, my, my mother was a, a huge inspiration for putting me on this career track. And I'm so sorry for your loss. Um, what's next on your bucket list? What are you working towards? Well, I just um, I started up a new company called All With Books. Uh, very different, but related. Uh, we had a successful Kickstarter campaign. Um, and basically the model, we're working with one Mayan community um, in Campeche, Mexico. Uh, and we're telling the story of the, in this case, the value chain of honey. Uh, the community relies about 80% of their income is based on honey production. And we know all the current dilemmas, environmental dilemmas with pollination and, and so forth that's occurring. Um, and in this case, some of the developments there. And basically, the model is um, we are um, sharing royalty with this community, and they've identified a need as a community library. Uh, so one would be a library for books, but also a community space for other activities and studying. Um, but we're telling the story through the through the eyes of the uh, local people on the ground and how that links to the, you know, the importance of, of, of honey collection and, and uh, right, through the, right through the value chain. So totally different, but again, very similar to the, to the value chain work. Um, and I think increasingly, you know, storytelling um, on different commodity areas will, will, will bring larger awareness uh, through the products that we buy or the ingredients that we use and so forth. So I'm um, putting some energy there. Uh, right now, and I think I've been to roughly 125 countries, so there are still some more to go to on a personal side, uh, and I hope to get to all of them before I, I move on. So, Wow. What's the name of the of the startup? Oh, allwithbooks.com. Allwithbooks.com. That's right. And so when people go there, they're going to find different storytelling. Um, it, it, is it actually with books? Yeah, you actually receive a um, ten, 10 short stories uh, told through these uh, 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 people of the community, but through characters. Um, these are uh, animals of the, of the rainforest, local, local animals. Um, and you get to choose a book that inspired you. Um, and that then they get a brand new book, a community that's been you know, translated uh, and um, and donated to their library. So it's also a cultural exchange, something that inspired you and stories that have inspired them. Wow, this sounds like a great program for schools. Is it is it suitable for students of all ages? 
Yeah, it's really geared to kind of children five and up because it, if you look at the graphics, it's, it's, it's more of a children's book. Um, but it's interesting you say that because we want to, now that we, you know, have proof of concept, the library's already started to be built, um, uh, we'd like to have, start having some discussions with uh, public school. That's great. Thank you so much for taking the time. Thank you for illuminating everybody about Fairphone. We'll be waiting. Actually, you sh- did you start a, a wait list for North America? No, we have not yet because we really don't have a visibility yet. But again, all I can say is uh, stay tuned and hopefully it happens sooner than later. Thank you to Sean Ensett. Um, Thank you to you, the listeners. That's been another episode of Magnifico Radio. You can subscribe to us on iTunes, Stitcher, or wherever you listen to great podcasts. And if you like what you hear, give us a review or a rating. It'll help Magnifico Radio rank higher amongst conventional podcasts. And if you have a question or want to be a sponsor, you can email me, radio at magnifico.com. And want to learn more about ethical fashion and fair products, sign up for our newsletter magnifico.com. I'm Kate Black. Thanks for listening.